Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 11. Genesis chapter 15. We're continuing our study through this book, and we're going pretty quickly, but I hope you're seeing that as moving at this speed, it allows us to pick up on certain themes that are only caught when you zoom out. Um, So over the years, you'll see me, uh, if the Lord gives us more days, to go through some books slower and some faster, uh, to go much more detailed and sometimes to zoom out and catch the story. And these three chapters have so much in them. Um, But I think it's important to see how they're working in the flow of Genesis, but especially in the Bible as a whole. So we'll be doing a fair bit of Bible work this morning. Um, And what we'll do is we'll begin by reading Genesis chapter 15 together. So Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is in your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each of the three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in 1865, poet William Ross Wallace wrote a little poem in praise of motherhood. The first stanza goes like this. Blessings on the hand of women, angels guard its strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, hovel, oh, no matter where the place, Would that never storms assail it, rainbows ever gently curled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Most probably are unfamiliar with the poem, except for maybe that refrain, because I think they made a quasi-horror movie out of it a number of years ago. But it is this praise of motherhood, and it is startling to consider this song praising motherhood and, and thanking God for it, really, and yet 
less than 100 years later, the greatest fear that was going around in the academy of the world was that of overpopulation, of, you might say, too much motherhood. Uh, seriously, in 1964, biologist Paul Ehrlich wrote a book, Population Bomb. And he argued in that book that in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people would starve to death due to overpopulation. And he was originally thought to be an ecological hero, the man who was going to help all these people to thrive. Well, it turned out he was wrong, because another man named Norman Borlaug increased crop production so much that he won the Nobel Peace Prize and was credited with saving a billion lives for his ability to increase crop production. Well, you fast forward to today, there is still a great fear of overpopulation. The details shift a little, but it's still a deep concern. Hence the reason in June of this year, the New York Times ran some letters to the editor. You see, these letters were responding to the fact that there was a concern of not having enough uh, uh, infertility rate. Uh, if you get below a certain point, a nation can't continue to survive. Uh, and particularly, it's interesting that the wealthier a country is, the lower the fertility rate tends to be. Uh, that's a talk for another day, I suppose. But there was people responding, saying, no, overpopulation is a problem, and who cares about low fertility rates? And so here's two of those letters in summary form. One was a college sophomore, and she wrote into the Times saying, when people my age think about having children, they don't talk about whether or not we like kids or whether or not we'd be able to support them. No, it's about the moral implications of putting more people on this earth to consume more resources. That's a stunning worldview. But another man in Connecticut wrote something similar. He put it even starker terms, I think. He said the falling birth rate is a good thing, a blessing even, because it's been estimated that the earth can only sustain a population of three to four billion over and against the almost eight billion we have right now. In other words, he's saying it'll be a good thing if half of us die out. Now, he wouldn't put it in quite such stark terms, but who knew that the argument would continue, that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world, or perhaps the hand that doesn't rock the cradle? Here's why I bring this up this morning. Because from a Christian view of the world, as we've seen in Genesis, God's charge to humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. That's at the heartbeat of our existence as human beings. And that's not to say that every single person will multiply the same way or at all. But it is to say that part of God's blessing upon the world comes through multiplication. That's what we saw in the charge to Adam. And he repeated that charge to Noah. And he's also repeating that charge to Abram. Because through his seed, offspring, uh, first part of our passage will be translated descendants, the blessing of God will flow to the world. So my argument for this morning from these three chapters is this. The Christian faith is a patient plotting while waiting for the promised son. You see, that's the whole biblical storyline really being played out. The promise first went to Adam and Eve, as we said, and that his son, their son, would crush the other seed, the seed of the serpent who was to come. And this promise, through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, has been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until it comes to this man, Abram, whose wife is barren. Well, this morning we'll find the mention that Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in context, he believed God that he was going to have a seed, an offspring, through whom this blessing was going to come. Now, of course, what's stunning is, as we read earlier from Galatians 3, 7, 
Paul looks back on these chapters of Genesis and he says, understand then, it's those who have the faith of Abraham that are the children of Abraham. Which is to say that Abram's descendants, which are more than the stars, is far more than a literal, physical descendants, as we will see. So as it was with Abraham, the Christian faith is a patient plodding while waiting for the promised son. We will walk through these three chapters under the three points. We have the covenant in chapter 15, the plan in Genesis 16, and then the sign in chapter 17. So first, the covenant. Genesis 15 begins with God telling Abram that he is not to be afraid. And some speculate that maybe this potential fear is he just had gone to battle with these kings and maybe they'll retaliate. I'm not quite so sure. Uh, it seems in the context of the chapter, I'd say, he's starting to realize that he's getting even older, as we'll see. But either way, God begins by saying, do not be afraid, for God is his shield and very great reward. So to follow the cue of the chapter, let's open with a point of application. Christians, is this how you think about God? That he's your shield and your very great reward? In days of COVID, in masks, in countries falling, in terrorist organizations taking over, do you live as though God is both your shield and your reward? You see, I know many who look for an escape hatch, for a way out, to hide from the trials and tribulations of this life. But remember, Jesus said they would come. We need to continue to turn back to this reality that God is both our shield and our reward. You see, for some this morning, maybe you're, you'd be of the mindset that there's zero fear of COVID whatsoever. Uh, that if the Lord calls you home, it's your time to go home. You're ready to do so. And I praise God for that faith that he's given you. I, I pray that we would be bolstered and encouraged by your faithfulness and your trust in God through that. But let me ask you this. Do you have the same faith for other matters? For political turmoil? For nations rising and falling? And terrorist organizations? See, friends, whether it's COVID or whether it's communism, <laughs> whether it's masks or whether it's terrorists, nothing can take us out before the time. I believe it was... Whitfield, who said that we are immortal until the Lord calls us home. Or the psalmist puts it this way, Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. So we might be really strong in a matter of COVID and not worrying about that, but maybe we have great fears of politics and policies. Friends, to you, I'd say, go and read the earlier part of that psalm, Psalm 33, 8 through 11, which says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Friend, God is our shield and our very great reward. So on the one hand, don't fear any illness. You will die precisely when God calls you home and not a moment before and not a moment afterward. And he will be your reward if you are in Christ. And yet he's also your shield in the midst of COVID and communism, in the midst of masks and terrorists. Are we trusting in God? As I prayed earlier, we are learning a lesson from many Afghan Christians who are suffering outlandish things. 
Uh, One pastor from the United Arab Emirates had been in contact with an Afghan man, and he wrote about it. This man has already been imprisoned for his faith, and he's waiting for the day because the threats have come. And what was stunning in this report was that the Afghan man was the one encouraging the pastor from the UAE, a very safe country. The Afghan man wrote this, said this, we can trust that the Lord is mighty and will care for our children, and we might add whether in life or death. He says, our hope is not in politics, but in Jesus who is king. The pastor then reflected on these words that he was seeking to encourage this man and received encouragement from him. And he said this, this is biblical faith when all earthly prospects are completely bleak. See, friends, don't you see that faith brings great glory and joy to our Father in heaven? He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on, while these days are dark and tragic, remember that God sits on the throne in heaven. He holds the rulers of the world in derision. He promises to make the nations the Son's heritage and to the ends of the earth his possession. Friends, that's how we trust God to be both our shield and reward. Is it regardless of the situations of this day, we look to him. We fear the Lord. Well, in our text, God says this to Abraham, because at this point in the story, God has made these three grand promises that Abram would receive a land, a seed, and he would receive and be a blessing. And yet Abram's not received any of those fully. He's gotten whispers of them only. So Abram asks, how can these things be? Now, he's just been said that, that his faith has been credited to him as righteousness. So the point is not that Abram is lacking in faith. He's asking the question, how can I know? is more like the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Strengthen my feeble knees, as we sing in the song. And so God takes Abram outside, and he says, let me give you a picture. Sometimes pictures are helpful. Look up at the stars. Can you count those, my dear Abram? Because that's how many offspring. The NIV translates it descendants, but it's the same word that's been used all the way back from Genesis of the promise of a seed or offspring. And then he causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep, the same word used of Adam when he put him to sleep to take his rib. And then he tells him this story, that for 400 years, he's going to have his descendants, his seed, his offspring go to a land and they'll be mistreated, and then they'll be brought out from that land. Now, those kids will be the ones to inherit this land, not Abram. He's going to be long dead. And I just pause for a minute to say, Friends, I don't know about you, but in our frenetic Western world, a promise that my umpteenth great-grandchildren 400 years down the road doesn't really ring for me. Maybe for you. Uh, Now you see about all these themes that keep popping up in Abram of this waiting. I mean, for us, that my umpteenth great-grandchild is going to get something is like an anti-promise. No, I want it your way right away. I want my burger now, just the way I want it. But you see, that's exactly why it's the faith of Abraham. He's never going to see it. It's faith. He's trusting in God. Just as Abram would never own any of the promised land in his earthly life, so too he would never count a countless number of offspring in his earthly life. And just as Abram would have to wait 100 years for the initial promise for Isaac to be born, so too is the Christian life one of waiting for the promised son. Now, those of us who are living this side of the cross, of course, we, we know the promised son has come, but we're waiting for his return. For the return of the king. So as with Abram, the Christian faith is a patient plotting while waiting for the coming and promise of the son. 
Well, as with Abram, many have asked, how can we know? Well, what is this whole thing about the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch? In the ancient Near Eastern world, when they would have a treaty, what they would do is they would take animals and they would cut them in half and lay them on both sides. And the greater king and lesser king would walk through the pieces together and swear an oath to each other. So the greater king would walk through the pieces and say, if you ever call, I will come and I will protect you. And the lesser king would walk through the pieces and say, I will always pay tribute to you or fealty to you. But here, Abram's taking a nap. He's snoozing on the side in a deep sleep, a dreadful terror. And then all of a sudden he gets this smoking fire pot and a blazing torch passing between the pieces. Uh, the imagery is, ma- is meant to show us that God is the one who is really cutting the covenant. That's the way verse 18 should really be translated. It's the word for cut, and it means that this is a new covenant. Uh, that particular word in Hebrew always means a new covenant relationship. So it happened with Noah, and now it's, or it didn't happen with Noah because that was a reaffirmation of Abram, but now it's happening. A new covenant is being cut. So quite literally, the cutting of the covenant of those animals was a picture of the cutting of this new covenant. And what God is promising to Abram is that if I fail to uphold my end of this covenant, then I will be cut in half. This is what we saw with the rainbow, the sign of the covenant for Noah, that it was a warrior bow pointed at the sky. And God said that if I fail, then the divine arrow of judgment will pierce me. So that's what's happening here. This scene declares that God will fulfill his covenant promises. So the question then is, how could anybody, after witnessing this, lack faith? Would you, would you not just be overcome with passion and rigor in your trusting of the Lord? You would think, but you would be wrong. So let's move to our second point, the plan. We're going to actually read all of chapter 16 here. The plan. <clears throat> now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong. I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 
So the focus shifts to Sarai, and once again reminding us that she is barren. She too was living a life of waiting for this promise of the son, and she's had enough. So she says the Lord has kept her from having children. It could be that what she's saying is that she started menopause, and so she's given up all hope at this point, and so that's what's going on. In the larger theological picture, one of the most repeated themes in the Bible is the Lord opening the womb. So the theological point is, yes, very true. God is the one who is sovereign over the womb. Now, unfortunately, the NIV translation doesn't help us well when it says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Really, quite literally, it is Abram listened to the voice of his wife, which is meant to take you right back to Genesis 3 and the fall. It takes us back to Adam listening to Eve and her giving him of the forbidden fruit. We're seeing this on replay, the same thing again. See, it was a culturally accepted practice of surrogate pregnancy. So this was not weird. All three parties would have been willing parties. Uh, the NIV translates it, she's the slave. Really, that word avad, aved is it's servant. Uh, it, it does not bear the connotations of slave that we would think of in the West. Uh, so she's a servant. All three parties would have been willing participants and so they would have entered into this deal. And this was a very common thing. And I'd say, sadly, this kind of surrogacy is happening nowadays and with all sorts of technologies continuing to erode the family because that's clearly what this is meant to be a picture of, eroding God's plan for family. Uh, to talk about this for a moment, in 2018, a re reproductive health blogger, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but uh, this person wrote, more and more women are taking their fertility and parenthood into their own hands. When it comes to conceiving solo, which doesn't actually make any sense, but when it comes to conceiving solo, some women are prioritizing their timelines over finding the right partner or the right partner. Some are opting to go solo because it feels like the right parenting choice for them. There is no wrong way to have a family, but there's no doubt that it can be a bit more complicated alone. The seed for this was planted back with Abram. Make no mistake that we think there's no wrong way, that, God's, that, that it doesn't matter that God has had a plan that he's built it this way. Oh, we're just living it out with far more technology, uh, the far more advancements and things that we can do and ways we can get ourselves into trouble. But just to consider her argument for a moment, what's stunning to me about oftentimes in the secular worldview is there is this worship of science, and I happen to love science, but there's this worship about science. It's all about the science, and now we have the ability so we can use it there's never a question that science is good or bad. And yet, if you dig deeper, it's really a picking and choosing of what science we want to listen to. Because the reports are univocal. They speak with one voice. Fathers are ridiculously important in the raising of kids. But she got done writing, there's no wrong way. Well, the rest of the science says there is. There's a very wrong way. So it's this incredible thing that we have in our world where we have this ability to basically filter the facts to whatever we prefer. There's a deep irony to worship at the, at the altar of science, but then get rid of the science that you don't like. Friends, that's really inconsistent. And I would just encourage you to think through that. If maybe you're not a Christian and you love the science, do you love all the science? What about the science that you don't like, that you conveniently tuck away? Now, make no mistake, Christians do the same thing. There's all sorts of things that Christians like to tuck away. We put, put it elsewhere. I don't know what to do with that verse. I'm going to put it over here. And other ways that we fall into similar traps. 
Uh, let's just take parenthood as an example, since that's so much of what we're talking about in this passage. I'm sure every parent in here, when you first had your kids, and if you were a Christian, you, you had this vision of there's going to be glorious, wonderful, just family devotions, and it's going to be great, and like the angels will join us in singing, false. No, you don't control two-year-olds and five-year-olds, and then they get older and they have opinions. No, we, we fail in those things all the time. So make no mistake, it's not just that the secular folks are hypocrites, we are as well. We have constantly failed. But I'll tell you, I'm so grateful for the ladies who serve in the children's ministry in this church. Uh, they have a vision to really help parents, to come alongside them, and to provide resources and tools to help. It's not about perfect at-home family devotions, because that doesn't exist. What it's about is growing in consistency and discipling of our children, uh, to begin good habits. Uh, so I'm so grateful for some of the things that they are working on and the ways that we'll be continuing to come alongside parents to help them disciple their children. And for many years, I served in youth ministry, and I can't tell you how many parents would come to me and say, yeah, my kid doesn't get it. Can you teach them? That's not how that works. Now, the church comes alongside parents to help them, and you learn good habits. One of the ways that we were very much served uh, is at a certain time, an older gentleman in the church came and just said, just start a habit of when you drive home or when you're sitting around having lunch, start asking your daughter, what do you think about the church service? What do you think about the sermon? I think we started that when Ellie was eight or nine years old. And now, I've said before, at 15, she offers some of the most insightful sermon feedback I receive. Uh, she's sharp, and she pays attention. That wasn't because I did something awesome. It's because an older couple said, hey, here's a habit to get into, a simple habit on your drive home or around the lunch table. Talk. Talk about the sermon. I'd commend that to all of you. I don't care if you don't have kids at home at all. Uh, the whole point is that the word feeds us. So leave here and talk. Uh, Chip was talking this morning. We opened the evening prayer service after singing a couple songs, asking for sermon feedback, questions, comments. You can get angry with me. I'm not going to take offense. But that's how we grow. That's how we disciple. And that's how we disciple our spouses and our kids. You see, God's plan for marriage and the family are good. But it doesn't mean they're easy. So here Abram has just had this remarkable encounter with God, and yet the first pushback from his wife, he buckles and folds like a cheap suit. Seriously, he chooses what he perceives to be the path of least resistance. We could spend hours talking about this in marriage. We'll have to move on. See, God had promised Abram an offspring, a great multitude, an uncountable multitude, but he follows the customs of his day. And Hagar becomes pregnant, and she despises Sarai. Now, the reason for that, more than likely, is that there's this, all of a sudden, this visual. Hey, guess what? The problem's not him, it's you. It's, hey, why should I be the servant? I'm the one who's given him a kid, not you. So she despises Sarai. And Sarai then goes to Abram. This is your fault. <laughs> Did you just read the story? It was your idea. You're the one who said, I got a great idea. Let's destroy our family, and you can sleep with my servant. No, it was her idea, but she pushes on him, and what does Abram do again? He folds like a cheap suit. Oh, it's not my problem. She's your servant. Do what you want. Uh, marital discourse, uh, how we need to learn to have hard conversations. But see, this giving, uh, this giving her, Sarai over was once again a cultural thing. In the Code of Hammurabi, it said, when a female slave gives birth and then claims equity with her mistress, the mistress may mark her and count her among the slaves. So once again, Abram is doing just what's culturally acceptable. He said, well, I mean, you know, this is, just, this is just kind of what people do. 
Friends, culture's not neutral. Culture is not at all pushing in just this gentle river down the way. No, if you ever, you ever watched some stores of the, the waves in Hawaii that tear people up and, and have those incredible undertoes that spin you around and upside down. No, that's what culture is. It's dislocating. We can't trust it. We have to come back to God's word. And Abram's passivity to lead Sarai leads to her abusing Hagar. So once again, just as his sin against Pharaoh caused a curse on Pharaoh, his sin against not leading and loving his wife well causes her to sin against Hagar, and Hagar flees. But this angel of the Lord comes and encourages her. Now, I I don't have time to really get into this, but it's a fascinating thing. At one level, why would the angel of the Lord encourage her? She's the problem. She's destroying the promised family. Then then on top of that, you read about this Ishmael character, and he's, he's a mess. He's a wild donkey of a man. He's going to attack the true line of promise. Why? Why does God bless her and tell her she too is going to have this incredible multitude? I'd say it's because this is just a hint of the blessing that God promised Abram. That through him, the nations would be blessed. This is the doctrine of common grace that we've talked about before. God causes the sun and rain to shine and fall on the just and the unjust. And through Abram, for their proximity to Abram, they're experiencing this blessing. Now, there's another little little hint we see here that's fascinating. Uh, It it was called out that Hagar was an Egyptian servant, was it not? And then we read that she was on her way down to Shur. Well, Shur is on the border of Egypt. So Ian Duguid has helpfully noted that this back-to-Egypt theme would would have spoke volumes to the Israelites reading this, who kept saying, oh, that we could go back to the pots of meat in Egypt, because clearly that's how it was for them when they were in Egypt. It's a brilliant literary device going on that Egypt is pictured as this beautiful, fertile valley. Last week, it was called the Garden of God. And Hagar, the Egyptian, like fertile Egypt, is a very fertile Egyptian. And yet, do good notes. The Egyptian option, while initially attractive, always led to disaster in the long run. The first readers would have picked up on this. And then that brings us to the fact that we have to find this true offspring, Now, earlier we read from Galatians 3, and I would say Galatians 3 and 4 is Paul's commentary on this section of Genesis. You should really go read through it carefully and think through this. Uh, But starting in Galatians 4.21, Paul begins a comparison between Hagar and Sarah, and it is a stunning comparison. In essence, what he says is that those who continue to seek to worship God using the Mosaic covenant and those sacrifices and priesthood and temple and circumcision and all the rest of it, that were mandatory under the Old Covenant, those who still do that and are pushing others to do that are actually the children of Hagar. Just let that sink in for a second. We read past that too quickly. Paul says, Jews, you Jews who are obeying your Jewish Mosaic Covenant, now that Jesus has come, if you keep doing that, you're no longer children of Abram and Sarah. You're children of Hagar. A Jew would have lost their mind over that. We too often just read past it. But then Paul goes on to say, no, this is why you, brothers and sisters, with the faith of Abraham, are like Isaac, the children of promise. Which is to say that Paul sees the new covenant as introducing some radical newness. Uh, it's, It's not anymore primarily about who you are born to. It's who you believe into. And we saw Jesus saying this in our study of Mark 
Or what, what Jesus said was he called the 12 disciples to himself, reconstituting the true Israel, the believing in him Israel. And then right after that, he goes and redefines the family, saying, well, who is my mother and my brother and my sister? It's those who believe and do the will of the Lord. Now, the difficulty is, depending upon where you grew up, sometimes folks will hear this and they go, and their first reaction is, okay, well, yeah, that is what it says. I mean, it does say that the natural Jewish kids who continue to worship God through Moses are actually the kids of Hagar. And it does say that Abram's true children are the children of faith. But we have this like knot in our stomach. Well, what does that mean about the Jewish people? What do we do with that? Is God done with them? Well, the short answer is no. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 11. He uses a picture of an olive tree. And he says there was a Jewish olive tree. And some were broken off because of their unbelief. And Gentiles were grafted in to the single tree of God's people. And he goes on to say, many Jews will be grafted back in again. But notice the imagery. The fact that they have to be grafted back in means they're not natural anymore. They're from the natural tree, but they haven't broken off. Which is to say this, in the new covenant, it's not who you're born to. It's not who your daddy and great-great-great-granddaddy is. It's who you believe into. This is true for both Jew and Gentile, which is why Paul can say there is no Jew nor Gentile anymore. No, it's all those who believe into Jesus. And God will continue his work of grafting in both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, because all those who have the faith of Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. And for those who do not turn to Christ in repentance and faith, they are the children of Hagar, the children of works, not the children of promise. Now, friends, the true blessing of Abraham is found in those who've been united to Christ by faith, who took the curse for us that we read about earlier. The true offspring of Abraham is Jesus and all those who are united to him by faith. That's what we read in Galatians 3. And the true inheritance, what is the true inheritance that he writes up there in Galatians 3.29? If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Well, what do you inherit? Well, you inherit that God is our God and we are his people. And ultimately we inherit the new Jerusalem, the eternal land, as we will see. Because Paul goes on in Galatians 4 to say, the Jerusalem below is in slavery with her kids. The Jerusalem above, that's our mother. That's our inheritance. That's our homeland. So friends, just as all Christians are those who patiently plod while waiting for the sun, we're also those who patiently plod on waiting for the inheritance of the new Jerusalem, the true and eternal promised land. Well, that's going to bring us to our last point, the sign. And we will look at Genesis 17, 1 through 8. The plan was a disaster, and so God shows up again after a waiting period with the sign. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and said to him, as for, uh, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants." The whole land of Canaan, where you are now, reside as a foreigner, 
I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Notice the bracketing. I will be your God is the bracket. That's the main point that he's making here. Well, we read some 13 years have passed since Hagar and Ishmael's birth, and God now reappears to Abram. God being in no hurry to fulfill his promises. Abram learning what it means to be faithful. And in so doing, he says to Abram, you are now Abraham, the father of many nations. Kings will come from him. And that theme will be picked up later in Genesis and run through the rest of the Bible as well. And then God makes an everlasting covenant with Abram. What is everlasting? What does that mean? To everlastingly give him that land. See, all Christians believe that the world will be baptized and remade with fire. 2 Peter 3. So what does that mean? I think sometimes we get overly hung up on the land and we miss the everlasting part. Particularly because it began and end with God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. Or say the promise to Abraham can be summarized as saying God's people in God's place will be a blessing. See, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul declares in Galatians 3 that the true offspring is Jesus. And so the everlasting covenant hinges on Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. He had to have a people. God had to have a people, and he had to have them in a place for the true blessing to come for the one to come who would take the curse for us. So, no, the Abrahamic covenant is first and foremost driving us to Jesus. It's only through Jesus that Abram and his offspring are truly and finally a blessing to the world. It is through Jesus that, the Abr- that Abram becomes the father of many nations because all those with the faith of Abraham have been adopted into his, fa- into his family. And it's through Jesus bringing his people into the new Jerusalem where God will eternally, everlastingly be with his people. He will be their God, and they will be his people. Now, many dear Christians have tended to view this a little differently than I'm framing it here. And the tendency has been to focus on some of the details of the Abrahamic covenant. I think that Paul is very clear in Galatians 3 and 4, but but some have disagreed down through the years. This is why, I would say, the whole Bible bends around the anticipation of Jesus as the coming promised son of Adam and Eve and now of Abram. So let me picture this for you this way. See, there's a helpful idea that sometimes we pay so much attention to the picture that we can miss the reality. One theologian told it this way. He said that when he got engaged, uh, a little before he moved to England to do his PhD, his his bride-to-be gave him a picture. And so he he would go, and every night before bed, he would look at it, and he'd pray for her, and in the morning he'd look at it and pray for her. And when he'd write letters to her, he'd, he'd look at it and pray for her. And it was a reminder that he was to work hard, that he was to do his work and finish his PhD so he could go back and be with her and marry her, that the picture would give way to the reality. And he says, imagine how grotesque it would be if my wife comes home and I'm there staring at her picture. And she says, honey, I'm home. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I'm staring at the picture. The reality is there, but we're staring at the picture. Well, I would say that I think that if we overly focus on some of the details of the promises and the Abrahamic covenant and miss the reality, that's kind of what we're doing. So now look at verses 9 through 14, because this sign is going to add to this this whole thing. So starting verse 9, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant. 
you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has, been circumcised, has not been circumcised in his flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So let me use circumcision to tie in this larger argument I'm making about the Abrahamic covenant driving us to Christ. One theologian has said, circumcision has been rightly called the two-edged sword. You are either cut into the covenant or you're cut out of the covenant. That's what we just heard, we not? And just as God cut the animals, cutting a covenant, there's another cutting that takes place. The first was assigned to God. If I don't uphold my end, I will be rendered into. The second cutting is the sign to Adam or Abraham and to his descendants, his offspring. They too have to undergo this cutting and they have to keep it up or they will be cut off. But this idea of circumcision develops into an interesting kind of theme because as you continue reading through the book of Moses, uh, it is expanded until you find uncircumcision is the equality of human inability, which is why the beginning of Exodus, Moses will say, I have uncircumcised lips. I mean, that's the goofiest visual imaginable. But the point is this, they don't work. I'm unable to talk. And so God answers by giving him an Aaron to talk for him. Uh, later, Jeremiah will do the same thing. He speaks of ears not able to hear. Quite literally, it's uncircumcised ears. Again, a very weird visual. So you see, uncircumcision comes along with this inability. But then circumcision also grows, and you see the real meaning behind it was spiritual ability. That's why in Deuteronomy 10, Moses will say, circumcise your hearts. The physical is pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. But as you read through Deuteronomy it becomes abundantly clear there is no fixing this, which is why in Deuteronomy 30, 6 through 10, Moses finally says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants or offspring. Ultimately, the Lord has to do this work. And what a promise. God himself will circumcise their hearts. God himself will work in such a way that it brings about their spiritual obedience and ability. But that raises a question. Who is the promises for? If you read Genesis and Moses and the books of Moses in a very wooden, literal way, you're probably going to land on the fact that those promises are really basically just for Israel and the Jewish descendants. <clears throat> now, some of you might be interested in knowing, <clears throat> when this church was originally founded, the confession of faith used at this church did not hold to that view. <coughs> Excuse me. Because that view hadn't become popularized yet. The view has been popular for about the last 180 years or so, uh, or it's, it's existed for 180 years. But it didn't become popular until the Schofield Reference Bible, which was first published in 1909, and it took time for that to, to get passed around. I haven't been able to trace when specifically this, this kind of moved into our church and being something that was, became really prominent here. But this is a thing that many, many dear Christians hold to. Some of my heroes hold to this. But it's this, I would argue, an overly rigid and literal reading and trying to force the promises of God away from, or, or away from the reality to the picture. 
But I don't think Paul gives us room for that in Galatians 3 and 4 and elsewhere. And so the question is, why is there such a change under the new covenant? Well, I'm going to let Paul answer that for us as well. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 954, and we'll close with this. Colossians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 9 and read through verse 15. Paul, writing to the Christians at Colossae, they too, like the Christians in Galatia, are tempted to uh, hold fast to some of these mosaic regulations. And Paul writes to correct that error, and it is an error. And so here in 2 verse 9, he writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision, inability of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Did you catch what he's saying there? You were circumcised with a circumcision not made, with human hands. Friends, that's exactly what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy, that God himself would cut us a covenant. He would do the cutting that would bring about our healing. See, our whole self was ruled by the flesh, but it was cut off when Christ was cut off. Christ was cut off for us in taking the curse of the Mosaic covenant so that all those who repent and believe in him have been united to him in baptism, raised with him to new life. That's what Paul says. Though we were dead in our sins and uncircumcision, our inability, God made us alive with Christ. He did this work. He forgave all our sins and nailed them to the cross. This is why Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, Obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But those of uncircumcised hearts and flesh are not able to obey. Christ had to obey in our place. So friends, our true hope had better be not in the picture, but in the reality. In Christ who was cut off for us. In in the one who lived the life we should have lived and yet died the death we deserve to die. Friends, the Christian life is a patient, plotting walk, waiting for the true and better son to return. And all three of our chapters in Genesis have bent around this promise of the offspring. First of God's promise, and of Abram's attempt to do it himself, and then back to God's promise that all those with the faith of Abraham now are heirs of that glorious promise. And God's covenant sign of circumcision. Did you catch back in Genesis what we read? Did you catch? There was a hint for us all the way back here in Genesis of the true promise. 
It says this in Genesis 17. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for every generation that comes. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Friends, the plan from the beginning was the inclusion of the nations, but the blessing of Abram would go to the world, all because Jesus is the true son of Abram, who was cut off for his people. And his is the only circumcision, the only cutting off that matters. God swore that he would be cut in two if he failed, and he upheld his covenant in Christ and still took the cutting off that we deserved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it bends around the cradle and the cross and the crown of Christ. We thank you for all that he has done for us, for his life in our place and death in our place. Oh Lord, would you help us to cling to the reality that we have in Christ and to be those who wait patiently for your son, who is coming again to rule and to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is in his name we pray. Amen.